Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. The restaurant apocalypse is upon us. The coronavirus pandemic has had a major economic impact on the restaurant industry since its outset in March. In the wake of lockdowns, paired with little material help from the government, more than 100,000 restaurants and bars have permanently closed, leaving hundreds of thousands of employees out of work across the country. And those are just the numbers as of December 2020. We'll discuss the many ways restaurants have had to pivot their operations to accommodate constantly changing restrictions that have left many owners frustrated and in debt. In many cases, they've had to close down their restaurants completely. So as you can probably tell, this is a heavier episode befitting the heavier material. But we think that this is really worth listening to. And we hope that this glance into the industry will help you better understand just what's been going on. To get an inside look into how restaurants have been coping during the pandemic, we spoke to Samir Moganam, chef and co-owner of Beit Rima, an acclaimed restaurant chain that serves up Arabic comfort food in three different locations in the Bay Area. You know, my restaurant, we don't have any sandwiches. We don't do shawarma, which are great, you know, but I wanted to do something a little bit more elevated, a little bit more like, you know, what people don't know, you know, so... I wanted to show people that, hey, our food is actually just more than tabbouleh and shawarma and hummus and falafel. We have other things to offer. Samir took over his father's restaurant chain, Burgermeister, and had just remodeled and opened Beit Rima's third location in Daly City last year on February 1st. I worked really hard remodeling that place and building that place. And that location's been in our family for like 15 years. We've thrown a lot of family parties there. And it was doing well by the end of February. And people were really embracing us in the community and really loving the food. Bedrima was nominated for a James Beard Award just three weeks before California's first shelter-in-place order. On March 15, all restaurants in California were ordered to shut down their dining rooms. I'll never forget just going into, you know, my my th- my first location after just being at home for a couple of days watching the news and trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, I remember coming to the store and seeing it kind of empty. And that's when I just kind of started breaking down and crying. It was such a, it's like such a dramatic thing, you know, to go from like a two hour wait, everything's going good. You're on top of the world to, you don't even know what's going on and your restaurant's empty and everybody's scared. We basically closed the restaurant as soon as shelter in place was announced. And we also talked with Hetal Shah owner of August 1-5, a modern Indian restaurant in San Francisco. So we shut it temporarily for, I want to say, six weeks. So we weren't offering any delivery, takeout, or any of that because our business just wasn't built to accommodate that. August 1-5 was part of the Chronicle's top 100 restaurant list, and it built a cult following behind its imaginative menu filled with dishes like Punjabi-style fish and chips, served with chickpeas and curry chili aioli. When we first moved to San Francisco in 2006, we realized that there wasn't like, you know, a lot of like modernization in the cuisine that had happened. So it was like the same menus and like the same few things that were commercialized outside of India. So for example, like, you know, your chicken tikka masala other dishes that we had grown up eating, whether it was like, you know, Indian street food or home cooked recipes or just like, you know, Indian food that you see in restaurants in India and also actually in London and New York, like, you know, you just wouldn't find a lot of those dishes in Indian restaurants in San Francisco. Ten months after reopening her business during the pandemic, Hatal finally decided to close down a restaurant for good. It was an emotional decision. 
there's just like nothing more that I could do to keep the doors open. And we were out of options. And so that was just like really, really tough to, you know, finally like make that decision and just like let our all of our remaining staff go. And Samir is in the process of shutting down Beit Rima's third location in Daly City. You know, we're, we're going to be selling that within the next couple of weeks here for less than what we spent uh, remodeling it. It just breaks my heart that uh, it wasn't able to recover as well as the two city stores have. And the two city stores are holding up, so I'm thankful for that. Restaurant closures have been rampant since shelter-in-place started mid-March. To get a better understanding of the impact the pandemic has had on the industry itself, we called up Lori Thomas, the executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association and owner of two restaurants in San Francisco, Rose's Cafe and Terzo. It's just been a horrific, boy, about 10 months now, right? A horrific 10 months. And we're very worried still that the hit to our industry, and particularly to the independent restaurants, so we're not talking the big chains like McDonald's or Chipotle, we're talking our lifeblood of San Francisco, our smaller independent restaurants. We're very worried that the hit is drastic. And yet it's still not fully clear how the outcome is going to be. There's a lot of factors that are going to depend on who's going to survive and who's going to have to completely close for good. We do anticipate, unfortunately, I'm going to stand by my original projection, that we could see up to 50% permanent closures. Now, caveat, that's going to depend on can people get the second round of PPP funding? Can we get some additional grants? So the availability of funds into the hands of small restaurants, it's really hard to get. And Lori points out why money can be an issue for restaurant owners. I think the restaurants have always been perceived as, you know, if you're a restaurant owner, you're rich or you're glamorous or you're whatever. It's not that way at all. It's not that way at all. These are small businesses with maybe two to three cents on a dollar that we keep in the best of times in San Francisco. And there's just when the bank accounts go negative, there's no recourse. There's no recourse. Back in March, when the first round of shelter in place orders were announced, restaurants and coffee shops in the Bay Area were only allowed to offer takeout and delivery service, forcing many restaurants either to shut down completely or quickly pivot their business models. Here's what Hetel Shah had to do. So we had to restructure like, you know, the menu based on, you know, it's like what the demand was based on like, you know, food costs, um, etc. So we, you know, had to revert to like Indian like comfort food. And so when we had to, you know, make that switch, like we couldn't price a lot of our you know menu items really high. And we had to be competitive because we're now competing with a lot of other Indian, you know, restaurants or Indian chefs that, you know, have like ghost kitchens. And on top of that, we had to pay 15 to 20% to like these delivery providers. So overall, like we were losing money by just, you know, running the restaurant. Samir Moganam. A lot of restaurants' food costs are around 30%. Their labor costs could be around 30, 40%. You know, you, you know, that's not even including all the to-go wear and all the subscriptions and this and that. So a lot of restaurants are already running in the red, just operating the way they're operating. To put another percentage of, of, of cost on your final product, which is anything over 10%, I think is just ridiculous. That's, you know, that's why I actually made my concept the way it is, is because I saw how unprofitable a lot of the restaurants were that I was working for. And that's really why Beit Rima is the way it is. It's very simple. It's a lot of beans, 
a lot of rice, a lot of bread, like, you know, it's, 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 but at the same time, it's high quality. It's fun and really good flavors. Um, but I knew that if I wanted to be profitable, I needed to not be ambitious and I needed to make very humble food that I could actually make a profit on. Lori Thomas. We saw interest at first for people that um, did choose to stay open before the outdoor dining, sort of that April, May timeframe. There was pent up demand and people still had money. We had money. I personally would order takeout and delivery, right? And so some places were able to do okay, right? But then fast forward to this last thing, and we tried this with Rose's Cafe, and we pared it down to four and a half workers, right? Our salaried folks. We couldn't get enough business. And there was, it was going down, down, down because of fatigue. And because honestly, I mean, if I ordered takeout delivery, I said to my husband, my God, we can't spend $60 on dinner twice or three times. I mean, just personally think of your own finances and, and, and the wear on like not knowing when we're going to run out of money. And we closed our businesses again. And, you know, so we got to cook at home and it sucks and I hate cleaning and I hate cooking. And, but, but that's, that's the consequence if you're trying to run a budget. Now, if you've got tons of money and you don't care, you can order delivery every night. That's fine. But that's not the majority of our residents in San Francisco. I think that point that Lori makes is really important, that just the idea that takeout and delivery can be the be-all, end-all for everyone just isn't right or accurate. The point she makes is that not everyone can afford it, which is very, very true. And the other thing that I think is important to note is that we we can't save restaurants by buying from them or buying gift cards. It's been too long and they need a lot more help than that, right? You know, one of the things that I always wonder about is if consumers with that added pressure of having to save the industry, are they really thinking more about the technical aspects of it? Because before, I don't think people understood how much in the red restaurants were operating, how close to the cliff they were financially. Like this pandemic has put all of that in perspective. And, you know, I wonder if people are more um, enlightened about how their restaurants function because they hear about it so often. Like it's impossible not to hear about the trials, like whether you're on social media or talking to your friends or reading the stories that we write, um, you're just naturally becoming more knowledgeable about a thing that maybe you know, not long ago, you took for granted. Right. And it's so wild that in the wake of the pandemic, so many restaurants started GoFundMe pages, for instance. Mm, and you can't right. see that and think, oh, everything seems to be operating as normal. They're on the same <laughs> website right. where people are begging for money for their insulin so they don't die. Like, right. <laughs> And you yeah. can't come away from that thinking like, oh, it's too bad that person doesn't have enough money for insulin. Right. You have to think, right. Like, why does it cost so much? Why do they need help? Why aren't they being helped? Why am I supposed to be the one to help them? You know, in the beginning, and this feels like a lifetime ago, I remember in the beginning uh, when restaurants first, because of shelter in place orders, had to pivot to takeout and uh, delivery service. I remember a lot of them, even this place around the corner for me in Oakland, Arthur Max, uh, it's kind of like a beer garden pizza spot. I remember talking to the owner and he was thinking about doing like, uh, you know, t-shirts or, you know, having the logo on there. And that was going to be a way for people to support alongside gift certificates to kind of bridge the financial gap between when shelter in place started. And when we at first thought the pandemic would end, which we were, you know, the assumption was that it would be kind of soon. Like this can't, we can't possibly be in this thing for too long. And so like, I swear, I remember thinking at the time, like those shirts and hats and stuff would be the remnants of the pandemic that we would quickly later on that year look back and be like, you know, you'd see people wearing the shirts 
similar to like I survived Splash Mountain, but instead it's like, you know, a restaurant shirt from the pandemic that you remember supporting. Like it was, that was such a crazy time, but now it's over with, right? And now we're so far past that. Like those things don't even seem like band-aids anymore. It seems like a little piece of tape over a broken limb. And it's just, you know, it's crazy how far we've come from then, like how serious it's become and how much more we know about it. Right. And God, I have so many t-shirts that I've accumulated too, just out of that spirit. And they're certainly artifacts, but of short-sightedness, I think. And I think it's really important for us to remember too, that a lot of these restaurateurs are now telling us takeout hasn't been the moneymaker and it won't be the moneymaker. In-person dining is. So in June, when San Francisco gave restaurants the go-ahead to open for outdoor dining, restaurants were given a critical lifeline to operate in a way where they could actually make some money. The outdoor dining clearance also paved the way for the proliferation of patios and parklets. We invested in a parklet, so we spent almost like $30,000 on a parklet because our neighborhood and like, you know, where we are, like the street where we built the outdoor dining parklet, like we have like a lot of homeless activity on that street. So we had to make sure that, you know, our diners felt safe and like the parklet experience and like the outdoor dining experience was safe. So the structure that we built cost us a lot. Um, You know, we had to invest in like outdoor lighting, outdoor music, heat lamps, um, etc. And so all of that cost us a lot of money. That's the lifeline that let us reopen these restaurants and reemploy between 70 and 80 percent of our workforces in June and July and August and September and October and November. And then outdoor dining was halted in December. Lori was behind San Francisco's shared spaces program, which made it easier for restaurants to use outdoor spaces during the pandemic. She consulted Dr. Tomas Aragon, San Francisco's health officer at the time, about the reasons why he decided to shut down outdoor dining. And what he said to me was, Lori, closing outdoor dining is the lever we need to shut down the activity in the city. So that is why the city and the states are looking at outdoor dining. It's not so much that they're, yes, you're taking off your mask. And so by virtue of the fact that if you and I were sitting across from each other within three feet, even outdoors, and if I had the virus and I spoke to you, I would most likely transmit those particles into your airspace and you would inhale them because we would both be eating with our masks off. And that is the fundamental issue that they, the health folks have with it. The other broader issue is if you close down outdoor dining, you close down activity in the city. And then there's nobody to go to those retail spaces and you're not out and about meeting your friends and you're sitting at home trying to figure out, do I order takeout or do I cook dinner again, right? And it's a lever that effectively controls travel and movement. And that's why they're doing it. That's what I truly believe. And that's what I've personally been told from from people. It has nothing to do with the contact tracing. They can't tell you necessarily where you got it. They can tell you 75% probably, you know, family, right? Indoor community family. It's not outdoor dining per se, could very well be indoor dining. Let's just leave that off the table. But it's not outdoor dining in a, in a well-ventilated thing that's showing the tracking. It's just the movement of people in general. They want to shut that down. They want to close down all movement. Here's Samir Moganum, owner of the Bait Rima Restaurant Group. You know, we just spent $8,000 on like an outdoor parklet that we don't even know how long we're going to be able to keep there. And I, I, don't, I don't ever want to take that parklet down. But it's just been super frustrating to say the least you got to respect the ordinances that the government is doing to to 
keep us safe or as safe as possible. But at the same time, what's been even more frustrating is the federal government not being like the second round of relief that's still not even here yet. This should have happened six months ago. Literally every day that they lagged on that was costing people their livelihoods. And that is so sad. So that's what that's what really frustrated me the most was the fact that they're saying, hey, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And on top of that, we're, we're not going to give you the proper support in a timely manner. So that was, the, that was the end game for a lot of people. And at the heart of the restaurant industry are the workers that have been laid off en masse and seem to be facing the brunt of the pandemic's impact. When I fail, it's not just I fail and my 50 employees fail. It's the, the wine rep, the people who are importing the wine, the people who are making the wine, the people who are bringing us our towels and our aprons the people that are delivering us our meat, you know, we support so many different local economies, you know, the, 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 the asparagus grower and the, the flower, the flower, local flour mill, you know. Adonis Valentin worked in the restaurant industry for the past six years. Here's how their work conditions changed at the onset of the pandemic. I definitely began to fall out of love with working in a restaurant during the pandemic because of how the dynamic became a lot more extreme because now there are people who are expected to wear masks and expected to be covering their face. And I'm now being put in a position where when they don't do that and they're not, you know, compliant with CDC recommendations for safety, I'm now putting my income in jeopardy with no choice because if they deem me reminding them of their need to have a mask on unpleasant, then now I no longer get that money. And it's 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 fun to think of it like really shortly in a few words like I just did, but when you have 400 customer interactions and you know every fourth one is you having to take that extra step, which I didn't mind initially, it, it wears on you emotionally. And everyone who works in a restaurant will tell you there's already a heavy emotional element required of you when you work, especially when you're front of house like I was. So it's, it was more so of me needing to check my resources. And emotionally, I was not willing to take on policing people's CDC compliance, also feeding them and also being graceful about it. Adonis was laid off from their barista job at Bartavale Coffee and Wine Bar in Berkeley back in March and was unemployed for six months. The stimulus thing was kind of disappointing. So after about six months of being unemployed, around September, I started looking. And then I look at the jobs and it was nothing like it was like pre-February. Like I can't get a a 40-hour-a-week job in a restaurant they switched gears and are now learning metalwork at a laser cutting company. I think I'm seeing a lot of people leave the restaurant industry right now, but not because they want to, just because there is not enough work for them. I honestly do think that there are people who want to make this work. I do firmly believe that there's simply not enough restaurant employment because of the closures right now. The businesses are like our infrastructure and we employ the workers. Here's Lori Thomas from the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. 
we had about 60,000 workers in the food service industry. Then everybody got laid off, right? Boom, when we shut down. Then we knew that when we had outdoor dining in the middle of the year, we had about 34,000 that were back to work. So we had about 55% back. So unfortunately, those 34,000 people that were reemployed, I bet only 10% of them still have jobs, right? And the longer this goes and the more uncertainty, the harder it is for people to know how do we survive? The bank accounts are just like, like going to negative, right? So this is horrifying, right? I mean, one, we're employing a workforce that doesn't have a lot of options on the EDD side of things, particularly in San Francisco, because we're a sanctuary city, et cetera. Not everybody can access the EDD programs. These people have now been laid off twice. It's a period of six to eight months with no money coming in. There are very limited resources. It's not for the lack of trying. The city's done what we can. So there's real issues for food insecurity, for emotional distress, for the lack of health insurance. You remember San Francisco chose you know, actively chose to make the employers the providers of health care. And that has consequences because a lot of us could keep the health insurance paid for the first couple of months last year. But like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the payment for February for ours with everybody laid off. So there's real consequences that are going, you know, beyond just the the one to one COVID consequence, right, that are broader. So that's a big issue. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Justin Phillips, and we're back with our step back on how the pandemic has impacted the Bay Area restaurant industry. In late January of this year, the restrictions on outdoor dining were lifted statewide. And, and so now people are saying, making decisions, how soon should I open? How does the weather play into it? Um, so outdoor dining per se is not going to solve our financial needs, but it is a it is a moving in the right direction and it gives us an option to try to start again. Will opening outdoor dining save us from the restaurant apocalypse? Well, no, because we need to get federal money. In fact, I was just communicating with Senator Feinstein's office just now saying this rollout of the payroll protection program round two has been a disaster. There's been technical glitches at the SBA level that's saying that people that had loans in the first round that were applying. And again, I experienced this personally. Stuff got kicked back like your loan number doesn't match. We're like, yes, it does. Here's the documentation. So there's a lot of stress in the industry. One, is this PPP round two even applicable to you? Does it help? And two, can you get it now that the SBA seems to have outsourced the loan process and it's kind of like frozen with glitches and stuff? So we're hopeful and we're hearing that maybe there'll be a reintroduction of something like the Restaurants Act that the IRC was advocating for. And I think we really do need that. We need grant-specific, accessible dollars as soon as possible to ensure that we can let restaurants have a shot at not, you know, becoming dinosaurs. So it's a good thing that outdoor dining has been reopened. Funny thing is, though, 
a lot of restaurant workers are not vaccinated yet. So I'm not really sure how things are going to come down on this one. That's the part I'm worried about is, you know, the vaccination rollout and the opening of outdoor dining and other sort of activities in California. Just they don't make sense together. You know what I mean? It's a little worrisome, a lot worrisome. And I think I think that's <laughs> that kind of highlights everything right now, right? Like this uncertainty. And I think, and you and I have talked about this before, Soleil, is that you know I, I was saying that every something feels familiar about all of this, right? Like the suffering, the uncertainty, it all feels familiar, and that's because it's been cyclical. You know, we've been at this point before. And uh, where, you know, these serve these outdoor dining services were allowed and restaurants were, were going to be able to hire back people. And we had to think about vaccines and what would happen. We've been at that point before. We're going through it again. And it's just there's an unfortunate familiarity to all of this. Right. Although I think it's really important to note, too, that there's one big difference. Right. Like there's a different president. <laughs> yeah, very true. And it seems like, you know, Joseph Biden, the president, will be thinking about federal relief, like billions of dollars for businesses that have been impacted by COVID and increasing the federal minimum wage, which, you know, while there are some places in the Bay Area that are already at 15 plus, it will have an impact on other places in California for sure. I think, you know, there's there's things that will be different. I hope <laughs> that'll make make this a little less deja vu-y. Yeah. And it's okay to feel hopeful. I think, you know, those are good points. It's the first time in a while that we felt hopeful. You know, you you have the right to feel hopeful. And I think that feeling is unfamiliar. That hope feeling, I guess. Oh, yeah. I think that muscle is totally atrophied. <laughs> I'm telling you, Jesus. <laughs> right. Um, it's hard to be hopeful. I agree. But on that end... We also were really unfair and we asked our guests to speak to the future <laughs> in place of us. So here's what they have to say. With the pandemic, I've always learned to look at the bright side and the positive side. And maybe this will be the emergence of more minority business owners. Maybe it will bring more opportunity for people who may have not been able to afford it before. You're starting to see more pop-ups, more creativity. You know, people who were working for someone else before, now they're starting their own business as a necessity to survive while they're sharing their culture. So I think, you know, honestly, with this whole pandemic, it sucks. It's heartbreaking. But you have to stay positive and you have to stay strong. I think the ghost kitchens are definitely going to be on the rise. And when I say ghost kitchens, I tie that to virtual brands. So brands that you and I could just dream up, right? Lori's Tacos. That may never exist in reality, but I could I could sell that I have a restaurant menu through a ghost kitchen. And I think you're going to see more of that because there's no underlying brick and mortar cost and lease associated with it. You're leasing a small space, right? Think of ghost kitchens as apartment buildings, only instead of each apartment, you're leasing a kitchen, right? So the idea there is to, to be able to produce something in a safe and thank God they're like controlled by the Department of Health, right? In a safe manner and sell the product without all the infrastructure. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as the buying public realizes that this isn't a restaurant brand. It's just, you know, it's just somebody producing something and selling it out of a, a, of a kitchen. So you're going to definitely see more of that. I think we're going to see, um, you know, a displacement of like restaurant industry 
staff to other industries. Plus, like, you know, a lot of folks have like left the city. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see once businesses open up and like, you know, restaurants open up and when, you know, things are sort of back to normal, what does like the labor market look like? You're going to see the the brick and mortar restaurateurs like myself, especially the, the ones that are dependent on business travel, which God knows when we're going to see conventions back in San Francisco. But I don't think that's going to happen in 2021. You're going to see us look to should we hibernate completely? Can we get other forms of investment? Where is this round of PPP money? Will there be the Restaurant Act, which I'm still lobbying with the Independent Restaurant Coalition on? Um, could we see some more industry-specific grant-based funding? So until we have that, I don't know that anybody's going to really undertake new things. Um, there might be some well-financed larger restaurant groups that might be using this as a as a leasing opportunity to find some spaces cheaply. Um, but right now, I think everyone is in a wait-and-see mode. I really look forward to businesses being able to see people outside again, be able to see people inside again. Um, I really look forward to being able to give my friends a hug. I really look forward to, you know, being able to cook for a food critic in person again. I really look forward to so many things. And I also look so much forward to all of us coming back together and having that sense of unity. You know, the music sort of stopped and we can't just we can't just run it the same way. We have to rethink everything. And that includes our continued you know, street behavior, cleanliness, homelessness issues, we have to rethink everything. And I think there's more of a willingness to work together to try to make that happen. So that's a real positive. And I think there's an awareness that, you know, you can't take everything for granted. And that, you know, the ability to go out and dine out or shop or do things like that, and that you can't just assume that stuff's going to be there, we have to find a way to make it sustainable financially, and to reemploy our workforce. But I think there's going to be real pent up demand. I know everybody's just dying as soon as we can do outdoor dining to go out. Like, you know, I'm, I do so many Zoom calls with so many different people. We just want to go like have a drink together. Right. That is just like the, the urge is so strong. So I'm I'm hopeful there will be pent up demand for sure. And meanwhile, restaurants are still hurting and many of them are actually calling it quits. Since, yeah, you know, I closed the restaurant, I've been busy just like wrapping up um, things. There's like yeah, a lot of outstanding bills to take care of and just like, you know, processes to like, you know, shut down. And it's really sad to say this, but I think I'm done with the restaurant industry. I know this was a really hard episode to listen to. Um, so we should end on some bits of, I don't know, silver linings. Do you see any, Justin? So one thing that I I hope that, you know, we pull out of this is for people who have supported the food world, who've supported chefs, their restaurants, their pop-ups, you know, all their food ventures, and have cared about these neighborhood spots that they love, I wonder if they're growing more closely connected to these businesses, right? You know, it's unfortunate, but even if you're reading a GoFundMe page for your neighborhood spot that you've been going to for years, you might learn something more about them through that post because they're telling you about their workers, what they're going through. You're learning about them in a way that you never may have before because you didn't really have to worry about them not being there the next day, right? Like, you could have maybe a little bit, but never like this. And I hope that that connectivity, like after all this is over, 
creates a more healthy environment, uh, a more supportive kind of ecosystem for these businesses, because people will have learned so much about how restaurants function, what they go through, and the human element of it, right? Like, that's kind of what I hope comes out of all this. Yes. Um, the idea that food doesn't just appear magically in front there of you, you that there is work right. behind it and labor and you know, so many people all along the food system from the people who create the food, the people who imagine it, the people who pick it in the fields of this country, you know, they have all been impacted by this. And it's really important to remember them and pay due credence to the work they do just so we can have something nice, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely it. And speaking of transparency, too, I think one of the things that has been really, really exciting to see is more just consumer support for certain things that weren't very sexy to talk about in the food industry, right? Like like the cottage food laws, for instance. Right. We talked about that last season, but just when businesses like Mona Lena Michaels or Broke Ass Cooks were shut down by the Alameda County Health Department, like people noticed and people talked about it and people thought, okay, there's a some way to keep this from happening. Like how do we get that to happen, right? And to have consumers care about that part of the process is new, I think. And also, it honestly, and when you talk about like the cottage food industry, it, it, they also feel more, I don't know, maybe this is the hopefulness seeping into me, but more productive, I guess, because more people are paying attention and the conversations just feel, I don't know, like they could be fruitful. They are fruitful. I don't know how to put it. <laughs> uh, so your hope muscle hasn't died yet. That's really great to hear. That was actually a really good line. <laughs> My hope muscle hasn't died yet. Uh, it hasn't withered and fallen off. Exactly. No, that's perfect. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I guess it's still there. I'm surprised. I'm surprised as anybody. Damn. Thanks again to Samir Moganam, Hetel Shah, Lori Thomas, and Adonis Valentine for being in conversation with us. And to Erica Carlos for reporting and producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Before we go, we want to leave you with a poem written by one of our listeners, Annette Coward. The Shared Table. I'm here to hold things together with spreads of deliciousness and delectable offerings. I hold up that which nourishes and delights. I'm a one-stop shop celebrating a communion of conversation. I showcase dishes with heritage, texture, diversity, fascination. Juicy, decadent, healthy, saucy, picante, and nice spice. Where words animate sustenance like combo, gumbo, jumbo, mango jalapeno, and voices are punctuated by smacking lips, sing-song, laughter, whispers, and debate. Making music in multiple languages, telling stories of the generations, including our connections to family, land, love, and harvest. Though my contents change depending on time, place, and purpose, in another sense, I am timeless, magical, and mysterious, a shared table holding light and warm space. Come sit beside me, Rest your body and mind. Consume goodness. Share your being and heart. I stand strong, made of oak, weaned through stretches of sun and storms. 
All the seasons I've endured over the years are vested deep into my form. With vibrations of abundance, scarcity, disease, disaster, warmth and cold, upward ascendant, leaf shutting and back to basics, budding, blooming, bending and ball making. I'm made of mother wise elder trees, born of acorns, seed shares, nurtured by the birds and the bees. I've grown through light, rain and calm abiding and serve as a home base for wisdom sharing. I've carried the wind, the sirens, the birds and mammal critter lifetimes and absorbed the voices of children playing in my canopy and elders resting in my shade. In candlelight with flowers and glittering decks or simple smooth and spare, I hold up elbows, weary heads and all souls with open arms. And those who surround me, we travel miles together. Thanks for listening.